As we've seen in the previous sessions, what Christ has accomplished on our behalf brings us glorious riches. We have all the wealth that comes from the treasure of wisdom and knowledge in Christ. And as the advertising pitchmen on commercials sometimes say, but wait, there's more. Seriously, though, there really is more to the riches we have in Christ. And Paul is going to describe some of those additional things in today's passage. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 6, he begins by saying, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Therefore is a key word, which usually indicates a transition in the flow of thought. And this is the first time we've seen this word so far in the book of Colossians. We could translate it this way. In view of everything that has been said before, someone once said, when you see the word therefore, look back to see what it's there for. If we want to understand why Paul used the word therefore here in Colossians 2 verse 6, we should look back to the immediate context to see what he's been building up to in his flow of thought. As we review what Paul has said so far in this letter, one thing we notice is that the subjects of the sentences have changed periodically. We could chart them this way. In general, the primary subjects of the sentences for the first 14 verses in chapter 1 are in the first person. Paul tends to use I or we when he is talking about himself, his appreciation for the Colossians, and his prayer for them. However, in the next section, verses 15 through 23, when Paul is talking about the greatness of Christ, he tends to use the third person in referring to the wonderful things which he, Christ, accomplished on our behalf. In the passage we covered in the last session, Colossians chapter 1 verse 24 through chapter 2 verse 5, Paul switched back to using the first person, I or we, when he talked about his ministry on behalf of the church. So as we look over the section we'll be covering in this session, we notice a definite change in the subject of the sentences. In general, Paul will now begin using the second person, you, as he discusses how the work of Christ applies directly to the Colossians. The first time we saw Paul use the second person, you, was in chapter 1, verse 21, when he put the spotlight briefly on the Colossians to illuminate their lost and hopeless condition before they put their faith in Christ. But as we begin this new section in chapter 2, Paul is making a major transition or shift in subject. He says, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord. The word received is the Greek word paralambano, which literally means to receive near. Paul is using this word the same way he used the word learned in Colossians 1 verse 7, when he said that they had learned the word of truth, the gospel, from Epaphras, when the church in Colossae was originally established. Paul does not use the phrase Christ Jesus the Lord in any of his other letters. So here we can take this phrase to mean that the Colossians received, accepted, and believed three important things about Christ. 
First, Jesus is the Christ, or Messiah, which God promised in the Old Testament. This emphasizes that Christ is the Savior of the world. Second, the Messiah, or Christ, is identified as the human person whose name was Jesus. This emphasizes the complete humanity of Jesus, which was necessary in order for him to pay the death penalty for the sins of mankind. Third, Jesus is the Lord. This is the Greek word kurios, which refers to his sovereignty and supreme authority. This is the title that's given to God the Messiah. So, in this brief description, Paul sums up all that he's already taught about the deity, humanity, and supremacy of Jesus. He finishes this verse by commanding them to walk in him. He's saying, as a result of everything you've learned so far about Christ Jesus, put these truths into action in your life and your lifestyle. Walk is the Greek word peripeteo, which we already saw in chapter 1, verse 10, when Paul prayed that as they continue to grow in spiritual maturity, they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. In that verse, Paul prayed that this might be true of the Colossians, but here in this verse, Paul is commanding them to do it. The verb is a present imperative, which means continually do this, or keep on doing this. He wants them to demonstrate the impact that Christ has had on them by habitually living in a way that glorifies Christ. In chapter 2, verse 7, Paul says, Having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed, and overflowing with gratitude. In this verse, Paul is elaborating on how this will look to those around the believers who are watching them. He combines several different word pictures in order to communicate his point. First, he pictures a tree which has deep roots that hold it firmly in place. He says, having been firmly rooted. Rooted is the Greek word ridzao, which means to strengthen with roots or to be firmly grounded. The perfect tense here indicates something that happened once in the past, but which is having continuing results in the present. This seems to picture the time of their original planting as seedlings, when they first heard the truths of God's word, followed by their continued growth toward maturity in Christ. Next, he says, being built up in him. The Greek word epoikademeo means to build upon. So here, Paul pictures the construction of a building level by level on a solid foundation. One Bible scholar expressed it this way, as rooted implies their vitality, so built up implies massive solidity. The present tense indicates something that is continually in process, just as the spiritual growth of the Colossians is a continuing process over time. This is coupled with the word established, which is the Greek term bebeao, that means to make firm or stable. Both words are in the present tense, indicating that each level of the building being constructed is stabilized before the next phase is added. 
These word pictures remind us of what Paul said in chapter 1, verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast. The Colossians can accomplish this if they'll allow themselves to be built up in their faith, especially through the ministry of those whom God has sent to them in the church. Here Paul adds, just as you were instructed, which is the Greek word didasko. It's the same word he used in chapter 1 verse 28 when he said that it was his job to teach every man. The teaching ministry of the church is the primary means through which believers are able to grow towards spiritual maturity as they're built up and established in the truths of the faith. Finally, Paul says that they should be overflowing with gratitude. This was also one of the steps towards spiritual maturity that Paul prayed for the Colossians in chapter 1, verses 9 through 12. He said, So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. Now here in chapter 2, verse 7, Paul tells them what the extent of their thankfulness should be. Here he says, overflowing with gratitude. And he used the Greek word perisuo, which means to superabound, or to furnish so richly that there's an overflowing abundance. One Bible commentator said this verse means expressing overflowing thanks to God since you have been made acquainted with truths so precious and glorious. If there is anything for which we ought to be thankful, it is for the knowledge of the great truths respecting our Lord and Savior. In Colossians 2 verse 8, Paul says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the traditions of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. We saw in the last session how Paul included a brief warning to the Colossians in chapter 2 verse 4 when he said, I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. Here in this verse, Paul will expand on what he meant by that warning. He starts by saying, see to it, which is the Greek word blepo. It means to be on the lookout or to be watchful and aware of any signs of danger. This is an imperative or command in the present tense, which indicates that they're to be constantly on the lookout. What does Paul want them to watch out for? He describes a danger here, followed by a list of the means by which the Colossians might fall into that danger. The way Paul expresses it is that no one takes you captive. The danger is described using the Greek word sulagogeo, which literally means to carry off as a captive or slave, or to be led away and made subject to one's captor. Paul then lists the means by which a believer might be vulnerable to this danger. First, he says, through philosophy. Some say that the Greek term philosophy, philosophia, was coined by Pythagoras in the 6th century BC when someone called him wise. 
He insisted that he was not wise, but merely a seeker with a deep affinity for exploring human wisdom. Around 530 BC, he is said to have traveled to southern Italy, where he established a school in which his disciples were sworn to secrecy and lived a communal ascetic lifestyle. He attempted to provide rational explanations for the world as a whole, and his contributions covered a wide range of topics, including mathematics, astronomy, music, mysticism, prophetic visions, and speculations about the immortality of the soul. Pythagoras was an example of just one of the early philosophers, but after him came Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, and so many more that they're difficult to keep track of. The early philosophical systems or schools included cynicism, epicureanism, hedonism, idealism, materialism, skepticism, and stoicism, among many others. In the ancient world of Paul's day, there was a centuries-old tradition of philosophy that permeated the culture and the society. One commentator has said, Greek philosophy was common in the regions around Colossae, and they were exposed to the influences of these plausible systems. Philosophy included speculations about the nature of the divine existence, and the danger to the Colossians was that they would rely on the deductions of that false, fallacious reasoning rather than on what they had been taught by their Christian teachers. So this is the kind of danger that Paul warns the Colossians about, both in chapter 2, verse 4, as well as here in verse 8. Second, Paul says, and empty deception. Empty is the Greek word kenos, which means something that results in nothing or having no effect or being destitute of spiritual wealth. It was used to describe someone who would boast of his faith but do nothing to demonstrate any of the fruits of faith. Deception is the Greek word apate, which means deceitfulness. It seems that Paul is making a play on words here because the philosopher's highest goal was what they called virtue, which is the Greek word arete. So here Paul says that what they called arete, virtue, is actually apate, deception. The content of those philosophies was based on speculative but plausible-sounding explanations. However, their ideas were not rooted and established on the truth of divine revelation, as were the doctrines that they're being taught by their church leaders. One commentator explains what Paul is saying in these words. It would be going beyond the evidence of our text to assert that Paul is lashing out at all philosophy as worthless or even dangerous. The kind he has in mind is clear from the further description of it as vain deceit, a system which has no substance and no power to edify. Those who hold it are self-deceived. Why then should genuine believers in Christ leave the solid reality of the faith for a spiritual vacuum? Here Paul describes this philosophy as being according to the traditions of men. A tradition simply means something that is given over or passed on between people. The context must determine the meaning. 
As one Bible scholar commented, this word is colorless in itself. The tradition may be good or bad. Here it is worthless and harmful, merely the foolish theories of the philosophers. Now, there is such a thing as Christian tradition, and prior to the New Testament, the gospel and the truths for the church age were communicated by the authoritative teaching of the apostles, which were shared among the believers. But the same thing was true of the dangerous traditions of the philosophers. Paul is calling for the believers to exercise discernment in following the truths of divine revelation while rejecting the empty theories of the philosophers. Paul also describes those philosophies as being according to the elementary principles of the world. The phrase elementary principles is a translation of the single Greek word stoikia, and the basic meaning is any orderly arrangement or series of elements. This simplistic term was used in various ways to describe quite different things. Some of the possible uses include the letters of the alphabet as the elements of speech, the elements from which all things in the universe are made, the rudiments or fundamental principles of any art or science, the heavenly bodies as parts of the solar system, the spirits or the hierarchy of spiritual forces which influence the world. Now, it's important to let the context determine the meaning which Paul intended here, and it seems that there are two possible ways we could translate this word in this verse. First, Paul may be saying that those philosophical ideas are simplistic and limited to only what humanity might speculate about using finite and flawed human perception and reasoning. One Bible scholar explained it this way, These words are characteristic of St. Paul, who was profoundly conscious of the supernatural origin of his own doctrine. The rudiments of the world are the crude beginnings of truth, the childishly faulty and imperfect religious conceptions and ideas to which the world had attained apart from divine revelation. Now, a second option might be that Paul is referring to the supposed hierarchy of spirit beings that were included in some of the ancient philosophies of the day. One commentator expressed it like this, Many ancient mystery religions thought of the world as a dangerous place, threatened by spirits or spiritual forces they called elements or elemental forces. They thought one was protected from these dangerous spiritual forces by either worshipping them or by finding a greater deity or spiritual power that was superior to those elements. Now, this second option gains some support from Paul's description of the so-called rulers and authorities that were created by Christ, we see in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, and over whom Christ is the head, which we will see later in Colossians chapter 2, verse 10. Then in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, Paul is going to tell us that he disarmed the rulers and authorities, made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through Christ. One scholar has said, There's considerable debate among scholars as to this phrase. 
It is applied to the spirits which are thought of as controlling the forces of nature. Since the veneration of angels is referred to in Colossians 2 verse 18, and since in verse 8 the stoichia are contrasted with Christ, the possibility of a reference to spirit beings should be admitted. Now, these two options explain why some of the English Bible translations have different renderings. For example, the New American Standard Bible, the New King James, and the Christian Standard Bible all translate this as elementary principles of the world. But the English Standard Version and the NIV, as well as the RSV and some others, translate it as elemental spirits of the world. We'll talk a little more about this in the next few verses. Finally, here in Colossians chapter 2 verse 8, Paul ends this verse by saying, rather than according to Christ. He spent the bulk of his time describing the danger which he wanted to warn the Colossians about. But now, at the end of the verse, he introduces the antidote or the countermeasure for all of these things. As one commentator has said, Christ is the yardstick by which to measure philosophy and all human knowledge. The philosophers were measuring Christ by their philosophy, as many men are doing today, but they have it backwards. Christ is the measure for all human knowledge, since he's the creator and the sustainer of the universe. As we saw in chapter 2, verse 3, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. So there's really no point in seeking something more or better than what we already have. Any claim by worldly wise men to have discovered something better is nothing more than empty deception. As we paraphrased what Paul said in chapter 1 verse 23, stick to the truth. You need nothing more than what you already have. Christ and his work to reconcile humanity to God have effectively nullified and superseded any so-called worldly wisdom. And now that Paul has started talking about Christ again, he goes on to refresh our memory concerning the truths about Christ that he shared so far in this letter. In Colossians 2 verse 9, Paul says, For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Now, in chapter 1, verse 19, Paul already told us that it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. But here in this verse, Paul is even more specific. The word for could be translated because. It represents the reason for saying at the end of the last verse that Christ supersedes every worldly system of wisdom. So Paul says here, in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells bodily. Now here there can be absolutely no doubt about what the fullness consists of. Not only is Christ fully God, but he is also fully human. This may be the clearest statement in all of the Bible about the person of Christ. One theologian has this to say about the errors and heresies that are associated with the person of Christ. Someone has said that there are only seven basic jokes, and every joke is merely a variation on one of them. A similar statement could be made about heresies regarding the person of Christ. There are basically six, 
and all of them appeared within the first four Christian centuries. They either deny the genuineness or the completeness of Jesus' deity, deny the genuineness or the completeness of his humanity, divide his person, or confuse his natures. All departures from the orthodox doctrine of the person of Christ are simply variations on one of these heresies. So, since the fullness of deity permanently dwells in Christ, Paul goes on to say in Colossians chapter 2 verse 10, And in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. The original Greek sentence structure is really important for understanding this thought. It's not that we have been made complete, but that he was made complete. And as long as we are in him, then we can partake of the completeness that is his. It could be translated literally as, you are in him who has been made complete. The word complete is plerao, which is the verb form of the noun used in the previous verse to express that the fullness of deity dwells in Christ bodily. Plerao means to fill to the top so that nothing is lacking. Now, this is not the same word that Paul had used in chapter 1, verse 28, when he said, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. There he used the word teleos, which would be better translated as mature in that verse, since it means fully developed or having reached its goal. It can be confusing when different underlying Greek words are being translated by using the same English word. In Colossians 1 verse 28, it means mature, but here in chapter 2 verse 10, it means filled with his fullness. In the second part of this verse, Paul says that he is the head over all rule and authority. In chapter 1, verse 16, we saw that Christ created all rulers and authorities, whether they were earthly or heavenly. So here in this verse, we see that just as Christ is supreme over all created things, here he is specifically identified as the head over all rule and authority. The context in this section makes it clear that when Paul speaks of rule and authority, he's talking about spirit beings in the heavenly realm. In verse 8, he had mentioned the elemental spirits, the stoichia, who have a role in deceiving believers and leading them astray. Now, this will gain further support later in verse 15, when Paul describes how Christ defeated the rulers and authorities. In Colossians 2, verse 11, Paul says, And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So, in this verse, Paul mentions circumcision, which is the Greek word peritemno, meaning to cut around. This term can be used in one of two ways based on the context. First, it can mean the literal surgery of cutting around the foreskin. But the following references explain why this rite is not required of Christians. Acts 15, verse 5, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 19, and Galatians 2, verse 3, 
5 verse 2, and 6 verses 12 to 13. Second, it can be used metaphorically to mean the removal of the sins of the flesh. This is how it is used in the following New Testament passages, Romans 2 verse 29 and Philippians 3 verse 3, and this usage is also seen throughout the Old Testament, for example in Deuteronomy 10 verse 16 and 30 verse 6, as well as in Jeremiah 4 verse 4. In this context, it's clear that the second metaphorical meaning is what Paul intends here in Colossians chapter 2 verse 11. The type of circumcision he refers to is made without hands. So Paul is not referring to some Jewish teachers who were trying to convince the Colossians to submit to the rite of circumcision. Paul had already dealt with that issue many years earlier in his letter to the Galatian believers who were facing that exact problem. One Bible scholar has said, Since this is without hands, the flesh is not corporeal here. Rather, it refers to the sinful nature of man. Since the text goes right on to speak of burial with Christ, the circumcision of Christ must refer to the value of his death for all those who are members of his body. So the circumcision Paul mentions here has to do with the sin nature which every person was born with after the fall of Adam and Eve. The fullness we have in Christ is able to give us the desire and the power to control the impulses of our fleshly nature. Later in this letter, Paul will deal specifically with some of these fleshly impulses which believers are to control. Paul now goes on to mention the rite of baptism, which is practiced by Christians as a sign of our identification in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 12, Paul says, "...having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead." In this verse, Paul very briefly describes the significance of the rite of baptism with its symbolism of being buried with Christ and then raised with him. He's not talking about the physical act of being immersed in water here, but he's referring to the spiritual identification that believers have with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and that gives us the power to control the sins of the flesh. Paul explains that the rite of baptism, just like the rite of circumcision, does not have any saving power in itself. As he says here, it is through faith in the working of God that believers experience Christ's fullness applied to their lives. One commentator has said, lest any get the impression that the rite itself is able to affect this life change, the apostle is careful to add that in submission to the rite, the candidate is expressing his faith in the God who raised his son from the dead. If you would like to learn more about the meaning of baptism, the Apostle Paul wrote a great deal about it in his earlier letter to the church in Rome. See Romans chapter 6, especially verses 3 through 14. Here in Colossians 2 verse 13, Paul says, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, 
He made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. Now, previously in chapter 1, verse 21, we saw that Paul began the sentence with the words, and you. In Colossians 1.21, he said, And you, once having been alienated and hostile in mind in evil deeds. And here in chapter 2, verse 13, he does the same thing when he says literally, And you, being dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. We could compare these two sections this way. We can see that Paul is elaborating on the truths which he presented previously. Before our faith in Christ, we were alienated, we were hating God's claim on us, and we were engaged in selfish, evil deeds. In chapter 2, verse 13, Paul continues to describe that wretched state when he says, We engaged in transgressions against God arising from our sin nature, which results in eternal separation from God through death. Back in chapter 1, verse 22, Christ's solution was to die in our place in order to reconcile us to God. There, Christ's death solved the problem of our own death sentence. Now, here in chapter 2, verse 13, the emphasis really is on the new life which God gives us in Christ. Again, earlier, back in chapter 1, verse 14, Paul had told us that Christ provided forgiveness of sins, but there he used a different Greek word, aphesis, which means sending away in order to provide freedom or release. Here in chapter 2, verse 13, Paul uses the word charizomai, which means unmerited pardon. It is a gracious gift given to us by God through faith in the working of God. In Colossians 2 verse 14, Paul says, Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Not only has God forgiven all our transgressions, but there was something else that existed which provided irrefutable evidence of our guilt before a holy God. There was a certificate of debt, which is the Greek word chirographon. Chirography simply means handwriting, but it was commonly used to mean a certificate of debt or a bond agreement which was written or signed by someone in order to make it legal. But what was this set of decrees which put us under a debt that we could never pay? It was the moral law of God which applies to the Gentiles as much as to the Jews. It represented God's perfect standard of holiness which fallen humanity could never reach. And it was against us, as well as hostile to us. As one commentator has said, it is against us because it comes like a taskmaster, bidding us to comply, but neither putting the inclination into our hearts, nor the power into our hands. And it is against us because the revelation of unfulfilled duty accuses the defaulter and reveals his guilt. And it is against us because it comes with threats of penalty and pain. It stands as both accuser and avenger against us. 
So how did God solve this problem for us? First, he canceled it or wiped it away. The Greek term ex alepho means to completely obliterate, erase, or sponge away. Plato, in his writings, used it of blotting out writing, which was the practice of rubbing or scraping a parchment so that it could be reused. So God canceled it. Second, he has taken it away. This is the Greek word iro, which means to take upon oneself and carry what has been lifted up. This same word was used by John the Baptist when he looked toward Jesus and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John chapter 1 verse 29. The perfect tense here emphasizes that the certificate of debt has been permanently removed. It's been paid or canceled and it cannot be presented again. So he has taken it away. And third, he has nailed the certificate of debt to the cross, where it was paid in full by the substitutionary death of Christ. One commentator explained it this way. It is said that there is an allusion here to the ancient method by which a bond or obligation was canceled by driving a nail through it and affixing it to a post. If this is the meaning, then the expression here denotes that the obligation ceased on the death of Jesus, as if he had taken them and nailed them to his own cross in the manner in which a bond was canceled. All of these things were accomplished by Christ on the cross. Add to this what Paul previously explained in chapter 1, verse 14, where he said that Christ redeemed us. And in chapter 1, verse 20, he told us that Christ reconciled us to God, having made peace through the blood of his cross. So many important things happened on that cross. And in the last verse of this section, Paul will mention one more thing that Christ accomplished there. In Colossians 2, verse 15, Paul writes, When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Here Paul says that God disarmed the rulers and authorities. We know that those same rulers and authorities were originally created by Christ, according to Colossians 1 verse 16. And Paul also stated that Christ is head over all rule and authority. Colossians 2, verse 10. So the context of this section helps us to understand that when Paul writes about the rulers and authorities, he's talking about the spirit beings which were arrayed against God and anyone who belongs to him. This may lend support to the idea that the Greek word stoichia should be translated as elemental spirits in Colossians 2, verse 8. The word disarmed is the Greek word apekduomai. This is a very rare double compound word that Paul used twice and only in his letter to the Colossians. It's from the two words apaduo and ekduo, and Paul simply combines those two in order to express how completely these rulers and authorities were stripped of their power or disarmed. Paul goes on to say that God did not do this secretly, but instead he made a public display of their defeat. This comes from the word degmatizo, 
which means to openly make an example of something. God celebrated his triumph over them or led the vanquished foes in a triumphal procession because of what Christ accomplished on the cross. The writer of the book of Hebrews explained how Christ's death on the cross stripped Satan and his demons of their power when he said, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. That's Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Since Christ Jesus the Lord has done all of these things for us, why would we pursue any other so-called wisdom or knowledge? We literally have more than we could ever ask or hope in Christ alone. By way of application, as we look at our walk or our lifestyle, given all of the riches that we have in Christ, are there some areas which need attention? Are we living in a way that would please him? Of these examples, which area needs attention for you? Being built up in your faith through solid Bible teaching? Expressing gratitude to God. Avoiding the sins of the flesh. Are there worldly ideas which you may have been taught and have accepted as true, but which really are just empty speculation? What things do we believe which might be contrary to the truth of God's word? If you have specific things which fall into this category, you can begin by looking for Bible verses which counteract the empty philosophies of the world. Do you have any thoughts or desires that you're yielding to, but which really are coming from your fleshly nature? Paul will have a lot more to say about these things in the upcoming sections. But for now, if you see something in your life that you aren't sure would please God, bring that area to him in prayer and ask for wisdom for dealing with it. Are there things in your life which you're having a difficult time forgiving yourself for? Take this opportunity to remember that Christ has forgiven you and he's nailed those things to the cross. If the God of the universe has forgiven you, don't you think it's time to try forgiving yourself? As we close this session, let's remember the message of one of the great Christian hymns of the faith. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the Lamb was spilt. Sin and despair like the sea waves cold, Threaten the soul with infinite loss. Grace that is greater, yes, grace untold, points to the refuge, the mighty cross. Marvelous, infinite, matchless grace, freely bestowed on all who believe. You that are longing to see his face, will you this moment his grace receive? Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin.